Hi, I'm Natalie from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Zach from Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, I'm Kent from Denver. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the sound of young America. I'm Dave Holmes, and my guest this week is Bob Mould. Now, you might know him best as the founder of the 1980s Minneapolis punk band Husker Du. The band only had modest record sales at the time, but they have been a huge influence on alternative rock. After the band broke up, Mould went on to release several solo recordings, and in the mid-90s, he formed a new group called Sugar. Here's another fun fact. Mould wrote the theme song to The Daily Show. It's called Dog on Fire. He has now written a memoir along with Michael Azarod. It's called See a Little Light, The Trail of Rage and Melody. It follows his fascinating career as a gay guy both in and out of the closet in the alternative rock world of the 80s, 90s, and today. From their classic album, Zen Arcade, let's listen to a little Husker Du. This is something I learned today. Bob Mould. Hey, Dave. How you doing? Excellent, Bob Thank Mould. you for the wonderful introduction. Oh, thank you for being here. Hey. Welcome to The Sound of Young America. Cool, cool. Read, read the, the, the early parts of the book when you and, and Husker Du are, are out basically evangelizing mm-hmm. for, for American punk music. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it is a scene that, that still exists to, the, to this day, but is not like you, you were kind of the first to you know, to really Xerox your flyers and get in a VFW hall and do your thing. There was a, there was a great scene at the time. I mean, you know, in the late seventies, you know, we had the first wave of punk rock. You know, bands that from England like the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Damned. You know, and it was it was you know heavily informed by a certain look. You know, the safety pins, right. the sort of pseudo goth look. And then, you know, the next iteration in America was, you know, uh, you know, more of a West Coast based, you know, mentality. I think, you know, Southern California, Northern California, you know, towns like Vancouver, you know, and then places like Minneapolis where Husker Du started and the replacement started and Soul Asylum started, you know, more of the flannel shirts, chains, military boots, you know, skinheadish looking right. hardcore punk. So, the, I mean, there was a lot of bands doing it at, at the time. But as far as Minneapolis specifically, Husker Du was the first band to truly get out and see what was happening and sort of gather information, bring it back, and start sharing it with other bands. Right. So. And, and the, the fact that there was no internet, it's easy to forget that, that not that long ago, 
you really had to do the work. If you wanted to find your scene, if you wanted to create a buzz, you really had an enormous amount of work to do. There was a lot of work to do. I mean, you know, within each city, there would be certain outposts, you know, whether it was a punk rock club or a punk rock night at a disco or a independent record store or, you know, a fanzine that people might have, you know, they might, you know, bands that were touring might take copies of their fanzines from their local town and leave them wherever they went. So it was a very organic way of sharing information with people. And, you know, you, you, you had the right to be selective. You know, you didn't necessarily give that information to the cover band at your bowling alley, you know, in your town. So it was, you know, when you knew that you found like-minded people, kindred spirits, you would share that information and help those bands out as well. do in the in the early 80s were, were something that was very brand new you, you guys kind of create you created independent rock i would say you, mm-hmm. you were you were on the forefront of alternative rock yep. meaning that you you didn't have uh, a massive label mm-hmm. powering you but you created a scene that was nationwide mm-hmm. you know they, they kind of transcended the place where you came from yeah. uh and within that community you were to some degree an out gay man mm-hmm. was it was it easier within within that community would you say well i mean the 80s music scene you know the you know the post hardcore pre alternative rock you know that that field of music was really what brought us together was the rebellion against corporate rock you know the, going out and renting vfw halls i mean that you know that was something that we could do for 100 bucks you you could bring a pa in and you could put a band up and it really meant something to all of us it was in the face of this corporate you know the you know fog hat rush kiss aerosmith kind of stuff that you know was unattainable um but specifically as far as as far as you know gay punk rock or gays in punk rock it was sort of like gays in the military really you know it was like the era of don't ask don't tell yeah. you know it was sort of don't advertise don't worry yeah that was the uh you know and 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 bear in mind you know we were already as punk rock we were the outsiders so you know the more outsiders we could gather the better so you know if you were gay and you didn't make a huge point of it of course you were welcome because you were an outsider so there was there was inclusion there you know mostly because the enemy was so much bigger you know in the reagan years and all you know the anita bryants and all i mean it all overlapped i mean you could be you know if you wanted to be the the token gay that like you know Black Debt put X's over Anita Bryant's face on your punk rock poster. That fit. It all, you know, there was, I think there was a place for everybody within it, as long as they hated Reagan.
That was Hardly Getting Over It by Husker Du. My guest is Bob Mould. I have to say, reading this book, I was I was re- I was blown away by how um, it, it, the story of the end of Husker Du is sort of mm-hmm. famously acrimonious. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it, um, and and so much of it has not been told. Um, you are you are very even handed in the book. Thank I will you. Say. Thanks. I, I did my best. I mean, you know, in my private moments, I, you know, I have different thoughts, but that's right. the beauty of this book and spending time really considering the whole, you know, considering it from everybody's perspective. Right. And then telling what I think is my truth and then, you know, moving on from it. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It, there's not only an incredible music scene in in uh, Minneapolis, but there it, it seems like the worst breakups seem to come from Minneapolis. What other ones? Well, I would uh, I, I I go to um uh the replacements. Um Prince and Apollonia. Prince and Apollonia was a shocker. Right? You know, I I'm not I yeah. We've the the shock waves of that are still resonating. Still being felt to this day. Yes. <laughs> what is it about Minneapolis that that created the scene that it did? Is the is cold it, weather? Is the cold weather. People have to find things to do inside right. for eight months of the year. Right. Um, I think that um, I you know in the book I I attribute it to a handful of other things that conspired. You know, uh, there was a gentleman named Tim Carr who lived in Minneapolis and. Uh, he worked at the Walker Art Center, and he was able to use that platform to curate some amazing musical shows, right. uh, putting together festivals, bringing all kinds of great, you know, cutting-edge bands from Europe and America to come and play at the Walker Art Center. Right. Um, when you have something like that that gives credibility, you know, then the local media gets on and they take it seriously. So I think that you know, I think Tim had a lot to do with uh with informing the scene there uh, you you then move on to uh to the album workbook mm-hmm. which is which it was a hugely important album in my life uh it was obviously in yours as well it really set the stage for for the rest of your career mm-hmm. you know it allowed you to sort of use a different voice yeah. literally and figuratively yeah uh, in the wake of Husker Du you know it was early 1988 and i was very isolated uh, I was living up in a farm in Pine City, Minnesota, right. and, you know, left to my own devices to come up with a with a new sound. Uh, you know, when I walked away from that band, I was, I think I was, instinct told me, don't try to do it again. Yeah. You know, do something different. Find your own voice. And, you know, spent a good nine months experimenting with words and guitars and different sounds and ideas and Eventually, it all came together, and uh, in the you know in '89, I put out the record and really tried not to draw attention to my past. Right. Record company, you know, they their natural instinct is X Husker Du stickers all over the cover, and I'm like, sure. just please don't do that. It's not going to help any of us. It's the sound of Young America. I'm Dave Holmes, in for Jesse Thorne. That was See a Little Light from Bob Mould's first solo album, Workbook. See a Little Light is also the title of his brand new memoir. And, you know, it's it's interesting to me that um, that your work with Husker Du and, and, and Workbook 
and uh, and so much of Tommy Keene's stuff in the mm-hmm. in the late '80s was all I listened to for about four years. Oh wow! And and now to you know now I'm 40 and it's and you guys are both out of the closet and it's mm-hmm. like what did we what did <laughs> what did I know about you guys <laughs> sort of subliminally because yeah. your sexuality doesn't come up in the music, mm-hmm. but I was it, it's it's. I don't. I, I don't know. There's a question in that pile of hay somewhere. Um, it's uh, the same thing happened with me as a fan. You know, when I when I gravitated to the Germs, it's like why would why would I? You know, why that? Yeah. You know, why Derby? You know, why? Yeah. Um, you, you feel it. It's it's instinct. It's it's in there. There's a code in there that we, that we all know that we you know. You know, we can't really put a finger on it, but you sense it when you when you see it and you hear it and you feel it. It's it's. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I find a lot of uh, a lot of what I do is for the fourteen year old version of myself mm-hmm. because I grew up in the Midwest and gay, and without any, like you said, no role models at all because they didn't exist. Mm-hmm. There was Billy Crystal on soap, mm-hmm. and that's it, yeah. and you know, and kind of Jim J. Bullock or whatever, you, you know. But that that was really it, and 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 even now. Although, you know, there's a gay character in every show, it tends to be the same gay character. Yeah, it is sort of the same gay character. And it's funny, you know, musically during the 80s, there was only a handful of people who were creating gay-specific music. You know, Tom Robinson, Jimmy right. Somerville, and I guess later when he stopped being coy, Boy George. Um so, you know, I mean, androgyny was always part of rock, but, you know, these guys who self-identified as gay musicians, I, that wasn't the road for me because I felt like it would put my music in a place where it might limit the audience that I could reach. And, you know, whether that's good or bad, you know, it's too late to change it, but that was where I was coming from. Right. And as far as role models, I mean, you know, with my, with my coming out in 94, uh, you know, I just had such a weird view of the community because so much of it was coming out of the eighties where we were told we were bad and, you know, we caused this disease that was killing people. And, you know, going from that to the nineties where there was lesbian chic, which I couldn't identify with. And then, you know, the media was still holding up the flamboyant characters at the pride parade. They never showed the teachers. They never no. showed the elderly. It was always the people who were, you know, very, very colorful Yeah, and, um, no problem with that, but I couldn't identify there either. Right. It, it was, it was funny. I had a weird, weird time finding my place. And you, uh, you not only sort of created alternative rock within the United States with Husker do you sort of reap the benefits of it with sugar. Yeah. You really, for the first time, found acceptance on the radio there was alternative radio yeah after two solo records after workbook and black sheets of rain i was uh sort of left to my own devices in 1991 and i went out and did a lot of uh solo acoustic touring and played a lot of shows with sonic youth and dinosaur jr and nirvana people who i knew who you know were either part of the scene that i came from or were influenced by that scene and you know when nevermind came out we i think we all knew that you know the battle had been won and that our kind of music was going to be the music for the next three or four years. And uh, I had a group called Sugar that put out records in 92, 3, and 4, so we were definitely there to, you know, catch some of the spoils. Let's hear some Sugar right now. This is Hoover Dam.
talk uh, about your um, your interview with Spin Magazine in which mm-hmm. you come out, and you're you're, a little, you're very hard on yourself for that article. Yeah. Or, or for the way that you feel that you were perceived in that article, um, it was just a, it was a it was a series of missteps. You know, for how so? Well, for so long I had compartmentalized my sexuality separate from my work. I did again. I didn't want to be singing gay specific music. I wanted a universal audience. So the work remains gender neutral. Um, you know, I strive for that, and I strive for that. My sexuality, of course, is an open secret out in the field. Since I'm not writing homophobic music, I'm not getting called on the carpet. You know, I get a pass. Um, 1994, Sugar is very successful. Sugar's looking to be a huge band, so negotiations happen. Spin Magazine offers up as much space as I want, but it's the Bob is Gay story. And you know that going in. And I know that going in. Easy way, hard way. Um, Do easy way, so I think. Uh, Dennis Cooper, novelist, uh, big fan of the band, Husker Du, big fan of the, the band Sugar. He gets the assignment, comes to Texas for two days. We have a great time. We do one hour of on-the-record time. Within that one hour, I make a statement, which is part of a larger statement about the media and their representation of gay culture. You know, crazy gym bunnies on a float wearing cod pieces. Yeah. I can't identify. So I'm saying, I'm talking about the media and not being able to connect and saying, you know, I'm not a freak. I don't like being represented as one. The byline, the ter- you know, the pull quote for the article becomes, I'm not a freak. Yeah. And when it stands alone, it really looks terrible. Yeah. It just looks horrifying to me. I'm like, oh, great. This is what I get. You know, I blurt. You know, I have, you know, I don't always say the right thing because I'm not sure what the right thing is. Yeah. It's the sound of young America. I'm Dave Holmes, in for Jesse Thorne. My guest is musician Bob Mould, whose memoir is called See a Little Light, The Trail of Rage and Melody. You took some time off to work with uh, wrestling. Yes. Work with uh, WCW, WCW, I yeah. Why? How, how did it happen? <laughs> why? Yeah, I, I mean, love you why. Know. Because who doesn't want to hang out with Bill Goldberg? Of course. Um, it's... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, wrestling was a passion of mine. I was a a fan of it as a kid. I became a student of it during the punk days in the eighties. I got to meet people who were in the business that smartened me up as we call it, you know, to, to how it all works. And, um, by the late nineties, I had befriended a lot of people, mostly at WCW who, uh, you know, used to use, try a couple of different ideas that I would give them. And uh, a spot opened up in September of 1999. They wanted me to come in and be the creative consultant, which meant I wore a number of different hats. Um, I would sit in on the writing meetings, try to come up with characters, try to develop vignettes to introduce these characters. Um, I was also the go-to person during the live shows. I was sitting behind the curtain literally giving people their cues and, you know, telling the referees on wireless earpieces when and how much and do this again, you know, tell them to do more of that and, you know, and trying to hit all of our commercial spots. I mean, it was a crazy, you know, a Broadway, live Broadway soap opera, a new one every two times a week. They're, they're the toughest guys in the world yet. So fragile because, you know, they're like, they're like actors. I mean, they, am I doing good? Am I, was that okay? Was that, should I, I I think I can do better, you know? Yeah. A lot of that. 
you know. Uh, you you also got very into electronic music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was around the same time. Um, you know, right before I went off to wrestling job, I uh, you know that was 1999 was the year that I was trying to build claim and own my gay identity and. Mm-hmm. You know, again, in, in New York City at that time, it was, you know, the soundtrack was electronic music. It was Madonna. It was Cher. It was all the global underground DJs, you know, Sasha and Digweed, Jimmy Van M, Paul Van Dyke, that kind of music, you know, was everywhere. So, you know, my frustration with indie rock combined with trying to claim my gay identity and in doing so, the soundtrack was this electronic music. And, and it's, there's still elements of that in your work. Um, yeah. Over the years, I've, I've steered myself back towards my more confessional singer-songwriter mode. So I have this interesting balance now, which is, which is real nice. I have these, sort of this duality that there, there are moments when it overlaps, but, but I enjoy them both for different reasons. You've sampled so many things in your career, and now it's just sort of now there's a, a, a well balanced meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the, on the, the, the ukulele stuff is hard. It's a hard obviously, instrument to master. Obviously, very difficult. <laughs> theme in See a Little Light is uh, write it and it shall be so. You, you say that a lot and, and there, there are things that you write about in your songs which, which immediately come to pass. Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. Well, I think we all have the power to do that. I mean, that's, that's how the world moves is um, you have an idea, you have something in your head. You think to yourself, you know, I really wish that I could make that tree go away. You know, and then you, if you put it out there in the universe, if you open your mouth and you actually, the words come out, you may come back and that tree may be ready to die. Yeah. It's funny how that works. And as with everything, it has two sides, you know, it's a blessing to have that, but it's also a curse when you use it. Yeah. You, you mentioned that many times in the book and these things, you know, things that you have been writing about do come to pass. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess the most glaring example would be the year 1995. I'm living in Austin, Texas, and I'm with my second longtime partner. We're about six years into our relationship, and uh, for whatever reason, I sequestered myself away from him, mostly to get space, but also to write uh, what would be my first solo record post-Sugar. And the contents of the record were the chronicling of a painful breakup. And uh, sure enough, you know, I didn't get that record finished, but within two months we were pretty much done as a couple. You know, there's a there's a glaring example of uh, write it and it shall be so. Exactly, and so, there are many more in the book. Yeah, it's fun. So it's, it's a it's a fun side thread. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Bob Mold's book, See a Little Light. The Trail of Rage and Melody is out now. Bob Mold, thank you for being here. Thanks, pleasure. Stay.
That is it for the Sound of Young America this week. I have been your host, Dave Holmes. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. Our music is by Dan Wally. And you can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can find past episodes of this show, as well as several other programs, such as Jordan Jesse Go, Judge John Hodgman, and Stop Podcasting Yourself. If you'd like to hear me talk more, you can swing by my website at adrinkwithdave.com. Many thanks to Jesse Thorne for having me in this week. It has been a pleasure, and I hope to see you again soon. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.